Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chaney. Welcome back, Food and Fate Podcast. Uh, this is Sam. Um, they finally let me out of the pig pen long enough to come and do an interview. So it's good to be here. And I am joined by two friends of mine. Derek is here with me. What's going on, Derek? Hey, welcome back. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, and we are joined today by Matt Lenahan, our favorite Lutheran and Phillies fan. Two things that are odd to me. And yet, nevertheless, Matt's one of my favorite pe- people in the world doing some fabulous work. So, Matt, it's good to have you on the pod. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks, Derek. Good to be with you both. And so full disclosure, all of us are knee deep as we record this in sort of the Holy Week insanity, Um, not to mention getting a garden started. I have some beef with those um, who decided to put all of this for us farmers and pastors all in like the same two week span. But uh, we're excited to join in with Matt. Um, If you don't remember, Matt was one of our guests at Headwaters post uh, pre-pandemic, Lord only knows how long ago that was. And so we're glad to have Matt back on and to talk a little bit more about Whittle Farm, um, which Matt directs. This ministry partnership is between the Lutheran Camping Corporation, the Lower Susquehanna Synod, and hunger-free Lancaster County. And it reclaims a portion of the acreage gifted to the Lutheran Camping Corporation for its original use, farming. The crops that Matt harvests are donated to assist individuals and families in need through the partnership with Hungry Free Lancaster County. And so it really is a joy, Matt, to have you. And uh, thanks for making some time away from the greenhouse to be with us. Yeah, thanks. I was uh, there this morning until I arrived to join you on the podcast. So, Matt, when you were on the show before, we talked a little bit about your geography, your own personal geography. So we want to actually hear a little bit about the geography of Whittle Farm. Tell us about the land itself. Tell us about what shapes it, what makes it what it is, what makes it unique. Um, Share a little bit about uh, and the ways that maybe your geography intersects with the farm's geography. Yeah, that's a great question. So the Whittle Farm is on the western edge of the borough of Elizabethtown, Lancaster County, uh, and it's an 85-acre property uh, along uh, Mill Road and Aberdeen Road, and uh, it's uh, adjacent to another farm property, and uh, it's only about a mile, maybe less than a mile from downtown, the downtown borough of Elizabethtown. Um, the, the land is 85 acres, about 45 of which is uh, forested woodland, and 40 acres is um, arable farmland. Uh, this land has been uh, farmed for, uh, actually for centuries. Um, the original deed for the farm hangs in the farmhouse. It was discovered, frankly, about 35 years ago when the, when the Whittle family uh, gave the farm over and trusted the farm to the Camping Corporation. And the Camping Corporation began a huge cleanout process in the farmhouse. They discovered this old deed signed by one of the sons of William Penn. Um, and this wow. was, this is a deed from the 17... 17- 60s. Actually, I think the deeds, the date of the deed is from the 1790s, but it refers to a previous owner 
uh, landowner from the 1760s. I believe that the deed is a transfer of land ownership from a previous owner to an owner in the 1790s. Um, and so this land has been um, in the possession of uh, uh, European landowners uh, in, in the United States be, um, around the time, maybe even before, um, before the, uh, the, the revolution. And um, it, its most recent uh, ownership was in the hands of the Whittle family, Chuck and Katie Whittle, um, who were Lutherans and farmers uh, who farmed that land for um, a long time. Uh, and uh, in fact, it was, I think, um, over a hundred years it was in their family. Uh, and then back about 30, 30 years ago, uh, Chuck and Katie um, decided that they weren't going to be able to farm the land anymore, nor were any other members of their family um, going to take up that, that uh, work. Uh, and so they uh, decided to entrust the land to the uh, Lutheran Camping Corporation of Central Pennsylvania, um, which already owned two camp properties, uh, one in the closest one in Colebrook and one down in uh, Arntsville, um, Adams County. Uh, and when, when the land was entrusted to the Camping Corporation, the intention of the trust, um, the, the intention of Chuck and Katie Whittle was for the land and the property to be a place of spiritual renewal and farming when possible. Uh, the Camping Corporation and outdoor ministry in general, um, at least in the United States until very recently, um, was uh, not a, a ministry uh, related to farming land. Um, there were no outdoor ministry sites until very recently, within the last probably decade, um, that were dedicated to farming. At, um, at Whittle, uh, basically the, a few acres around the farmhouse um, were utilized for um, some gardening practices. Um, so there was um, some, some flower gardening going on and some vegetable gardening, very limited vegetable gardening. There were a few um, apple trees planted, um, a small, I think maybe six or eight trees, a small orchard. Um, most of the land, the arable farmland, was um, planted with hay, with Timothy grass and um, with alfalfa. Um, and has been more recently farmed in the last 10 years by a local farmer um, who raises chickens um, and has a small uh, family farm. And he grows hay for his animals um, on most of the property. Yeah. So it sounds like it's this really interesting experiment inside of Lutheran world. You said there was no... There's no real farming ministry until very, very recently, um, but connecting it to camping ministry, which is something that is fairly prevalent across various denominational structures. Um, it feels like you're sort of the tip of the spear, so to speak, in terms of your neck of your neck of the church world, trying to figure out how outdoor ministry can turn into agricultural ministry. Right. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, I think of what we're doing as a, a kind of reimagination or revisioning what outdoor ministry can be about and what it needs to be about, um, given both ecological, the ecological concerns 
um, agricultural concerns we all share, food uh, production issues, uh, and um, you know, also what do we do with uh, with the gift of land um, that we're that we're given um, as an organization, as the church? Uh, you know, we're not the only church, uh, the only uh, Lutheran body, even let alone um, ecumenical body in the United States that has land as part of their holdings. Um, but the question that is emerging, I think, more and more on the lips of many leaders is, how do we steward this land? What, what is it for? Um, and how do we assure that what we're doing with this land is commensurate with um, our faith commitments and, and what God is calling us to be about as um, you know, caretakers of creation? So I think of a lot of what we're doing as Again, you're right, sort of tip of the spear, emerging, reimagining of outdoor ministry and its potential relationship with agriculture um, as a, for, for us, as um, an act of, of discipleship, of public witness, and an act of um, faithful worship. Uh, you know, we, we see the, the kind of work we're doing at Whittle Farm as, as worship, as discipleship. Um, and as public witness. And standing from the outside, I would say a little bit of a theological science experiment as well as, you know, we try stuff and see what happens, um, which is why, you know, the work that you're doing and continue to do, it just remains fascinating. It remains inspirational in, in our area. To that end, um, as we were, as we, as I was catching up on what you've been about, turns out you've been interviewed for a, uh, for for a magazine article put out by the Chesapeake Bay program. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I was drawn to one particular line, and it relates to your story and kind of how you've evolved in your understanding of this movement. You said that initially you were interested in producing high volumes of fruits and vegetables for food relief. It says, but now I'm more interested in what we produce and how we produce it. Who's involved in the production process? I'm curious about that thought process for you and how that evolution has happened, because a lot of us are out here saying the more we produce, the better. Um, and we try to do that as sustainably as possible. We try to do that as thoughtfully as possible. But that seems like a real growth edge for you. And I'd love to hear what that what that process was for you. Yeah, it, it sounds a little counterintuitive, right? You know, that we're uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about is um, you know, it's not so much how much food we're producing, how many pounds of vegetables we're, we're producing and giving away. That's an important piece. We're not, we're not giving that up. We're, we're concerned about um, sharing uh, what we grow to address food insecurity in Lancaster County. And that's always gonna be a, a significant piece of where we're, where we're heading. But within the last two years, um, I have become much more concerned about the other two pieces, how we're producing what we're producing and who's producing it. Um, and I, I think it would, for me, it started with the idea of who, um, you know, in, in part because we were experimenting in a lot of ways. I have a, a farming background uh, and a family farm, but I was never a professional farmer. I'm not an expert in ag science, um, but I knew enough to try some things. And I, I began to be really concerned about um, 
you know, chemical use for maximizing uh, productivity, um, recognizing that there, at very least, there has to be a, a healthy balance um, between chemical herbicides and land care. And at this point, we've decided that we're not going to spray. We're, we're trying to be chemical free. Um, and uh, that was really in part because um, we, we started to get more concerned about um, the food we were producing. We wanted it to be the healthiest food possible. We wanted to be able to say we were caring for the land in, in sustainable and maybe even regenerative ways. Um, we started to get, I started to get more concerned about the future of soil health um, and it was directly related to the ecological crisis and the future of the planet and the future of agriculture in general. When, when scientists are saying we might have 60 harvests left on the planet, um, if you're farming even a small piece of land, you ought to be concerned about that Absolutely. And, how, and how we can have a sustainable future and, and produce, uh, produce food. The other piece is the who. You know, I, I'm not an expert. Some people were saying, why don't you get a farmer or two that can help you to do this you know, the best way possible and be the most productive you could possibly be? And I said, no, I wanna learn how to, to do this work. And I wanna invite other people to learn how to do this work. I wanna learn by failure I want to learn by um, experiment, and I want to learn by teaching so that other people come and I have to teach them what I've learned along the way. So for me, it's also about building curiosity into the system, into the work we do, so that when people are coming to the farm with a limited knowledge, but some um, sort of um, interest in what we're doing, um, there's always a learning piece um, there's always a challenge piece, and um, they're always um, coming to consider the costs and the difficulties in producing healthy food. Yeah, um, I am. I am struck by how easy it is for us to bow to the gods of efficiency, which always takes us to leaving these particular works to professionals or to people with a great deal of experience. Um, and so even our food production should only belong to a small amount of individuals in the same way that we say where our religion and faith should belong to these this small amount of individuals, you know, a sort of a, a sort of an agricultural cleric, clericalism, if you will. And right. I, I, I love that idea of building curiosity into the system and allowing failure to be a part of what it means to be a farmer and to experience God in those places. And one of the things that, you know, really has driven my thought process in the last, um, you know, going into this season, but certainly over the last year, has been a, a strong sense that our definition of food insecurity, typically utilized by um, the USDA to, to talk about what food insecurity is, that typical definition is, you know, something like, and, and I'm paraphrasing, um, you know, a food insecure household is a household that doesn't have adequate resources to provide a sufficient food supply for the members of that household for a given period of time, maybe a month, maybe a year, right? Um, and so you're food insecure if you don't have enough funds in your household to purchase your food, right? Because that's the way the vast majority of Americans access food. 
the majority of our food, we access it by purchasing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've come to realize and I've begun to talk about with people is that the truth is, and we learned this writ large during the pandemic, when there were times when early in the pandemic when you'd go to the grocery store and there were shelves that were empty. Um, what we've learned is that actually more like probably 95 to 98% of American households are food insecure because we do not produce um, even a small percentage of the food that sustains our household. Most of us produce 0% of the food that's sustaining our households. Therefore, we are all dependent on a food supply system that is completely out of our control. Most Americans don't even know any farmers. And because of the industrial, uh, industrialization of the food system, we're all so far removed from the, 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 uh, the point of harvest, the point of growth. You know, CSAs became a movement a decade or so ago, maybe 20 years ago now. Um, but I would suggest that a limited number of people are engaged even with a CSA. Um, the majority of people are still accessing food um, in a very dependent model of uh, a very dependent food system. Um, and what I've said to people is, if you know, what percentage of your food are, do you grow for your household? If it's less than 50%, you are food insecure because you're dependent on a system out of your control that could uh, ostensibly, especially given the ecological crisis we're facing, that food system could be disrupted at any point along the chain, and it would change um, your food situation very quickly. Yeah. And so how do we as a community begin to reclaim um, and recognize that we need to become producers again? Yeah. All of us do. That I love it. And so we're going to lean into that notion of reclaiming. Um, because that seems to be a real theme of your particular ministry. One of the things I've been fascinated about is that you inherited, not you personally, but you've you've received this gift of this farm and then looking around going, okay, what is it that we do with this? And so in an at in a land that has been traditionally agricultural, but nece- but hasn't necessarily been used for agricultural purposes, or certainly not for sustainable agricultural purposes, you've been in the process of reclaiming land for sustainable agriculture, and you're doing it at a slightly larger scale than many of us. You know, going beyond a backyard or to a you know to a garden plot, and really talking about acreage. It's small acreage, but nevertheless, I think you said eight acres is plenty of land to be taken care of for sure. And so I want to know a little bit about what that process was like for you. How is it that you reclaim land? What challenges are present there? And how have institutional structures, you know, church, um, boards, et cetera, how have they been helpful or not? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say you're absolutely right when you suggest that um, the land um, that I'm farming, that we're farming together, it is in some ways a gift. So, and I, and I try to remember that and talk about that as much as possible that, you know, most of us are landless. Um, We don't have, uh, most of us, majority of Americans are, are now landless. We don't have, uh, we don't own land, Um, which isn't 
which is problematic, but um, uh, so, so, you know, we have to sort of think about and understand what it is, what's, what's the nature of this property. So it's been gifted to us, uh, you know, the gift of 85 acres of land is an, an incredible gift that um, most, I think most, most of us don't realize. And for, for the first 25 years of that property's existence, I'm not sure that the, the Lutheran Camping Corporation understood the, 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 the significance of the gift. Um, I think in some ways it was viewed as, um, you know, it had potential, but there was uncertainty about what that potential could entail. Feels more like um, an asset than a gift. Right. Yeah, that's how they were thinking about it. Yes, more like an asset than a gift. Absolutely right. So, you know, to think of it as a gift first, I think is really important. And then, and then to say, okay, um, if we're going to, if we're going to begin to um, steward this gift um, in a way that is going to um, be fruitful and productive and, and also is, is going to maximize the potential of this gift, how do we do that in, in, the, um, uh, in the most effective way? The first thing was we knew we, we were not going to be able to um, immediately farm 40 acres. Um, we That's knew that we were, gonna have to, we were going to start small scale, but I, but I said from the beginning, look, we'll start with a half an acre or about an acre, but my intention is to continuously scale up over time as we learn um, to do this and do this well. I want us to scale up um, that we're now pretty close to hitting the 10 acre mark which is about half of where I want us to go. I, I hope eventually we're, we're farming about 20 acres. Um, we're close to 10 acres now. I think we will be, we'll hit 10 acres in 2022 for sure. Um, along the way, the other gift beside the gift of land has been that the Lutheran Camping Corporation um, as a board, um, as an executive staff have been, um, what, what's a good word? Supportive um, to an extent. Um, I, I think the best word to say would be that they don't get in the way. <laughs> um, they, they're, they're, there's a measure of healthy ambivalence about the property that has been also a gift to me because they have trusted me to be responsible as a caretaker and as a decision maker with respect to um, how we um, how we steward and, and use the land, um, you know, uh, careful, uh, kindly use of land was w Wendell Berry's um, thinking, right? What, what he said about sort of agrarianism is the kindly use of land. Yeah. And they have sort of given me the, the, the license, the freedom to, to, to explore what that looks like there. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of yeses from the board from the executive team. When I ask um, to do something, they say yes. Um, and then they don't get in the way, which has been a real gift um, in an institutional system. Um, the church at large has a tendency to find ways to get in the way of good things. Um, and so has a tendency to slow things down to, um, to stop progress. And in this case, um, I feel like we've we've really been able to to move at a healthy pace 
and to make wise decisions um, and to reclaim enough of the land um, that we weren't over our heads, but enough of the land that we have challenged ourselves every year for the last um, five years. And we continue to be challenged um, to, do, to do what we're doing on about eight acres now as effectively as we can. So what does that reclaiming look like um, on the ground, so to speak? I mean, is it really just taking in a tiller and tilling up more? Is, it, is there other processes involved for that? What does it look like for land that has not been agriculturally used to bring that into agricultural use? Yeah, I mean, so it has been about, one, it's been about um, soil testing and soil health and soil composition. Then it has been about, um, you know, tillage practices um, that are um, sustainable and uh, keep in mind the, um, the concerns of the, um, the geography, or the topography of the land. So we're the, part of the acreage where we're farming now has a, a grade, a slope. It's not a, it's not a huge grade, but um, it's, it's slopey enough that we have to be concerned about erosion issues. And, and so we have to make sure we're tilling in an effective way and, and um, planting. Um, it's also about um, crop rotation and cover cropping year round. Um, that's been a practice of ours for about the last three years now. Um, and so we, you know, even the eight acres we're farming, um, we're, we're farming rotationally. Um, not only are we planting rotationally, but we're leaving some parts of that fallow cer dur during certain times of the year um, in order to assure that there's some regeneration happening with the soil. Um, and then another piece of reclamation or reparation, I guess you could say, is our partnership with the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay, um, uh, in which we uh, took a part of the land that we have been farming. Um, because of the way the land is sloped, the topography, there's a low-lying area that tended to become sort of a, a wetland in the spring and was very difficult to actually plant anything meaningful in. Um, and so what we've done with the Alliance um, through um, their reforestation program is we planted uh, about 300 native trees, uh, an edible forest of about an acre of fruit bearing um, bushes and trees, uh, American plums, persimmons, pawpaws, service berries, elderberries, blueberries. And then we planted a sugar maple grove um, that with the, in the hopes of um, tapping for maple syrup in 15 years or so. Um, but th that whole piece is also addressing the, the um, storm, wa the water runoff issues um, and, and is gonna make a much more meaningful um, uh, use of that part of the land. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it is about tillage. It's about um, crop rotation. It's about cover cropping. Um, this year, we were considering opening up a second field, a two and a half acre piece in another location. Um, and now I'm, I'm sort of going to hold off on that until 2022. Um, if we are to reclaim that um, piece um, to grow food on, um, there's going to be some 
uh, there'll be some tillage work that I'll do in the fall in preparation for that. And then we'll have to um, plant um, a, a, probably a cover crop mix in there for, to overwinter that, um, to prepare it for um, the no-till planting that we would do in the fall. We'd probably, or in the spring of 2022. That two and a half acres would likely become a, a, a mix of green beans and sweet corn. Um, and then we'd rotate some other things in there over time. Um, so yeah, that's what, it, that's what really the reclaiming process is. And because there is another farmer um, who has been growing hay on this land, um, we also, um, we're, we're also concerned about his needs and his livelihood. He rents some of the land from us. And if we're gonna reclaim it from him um, for our use, then that has implications for, for his own um, needs. And so we, we're, we're working in relationship with, with this other farmer. Um, it's not just about, um, this is our land, we're gonna take it back so that we can grow food on, um, and you're just gonna have to you know, not grow hay there anymore for your, for your own purposes. We wanna do that in a way that's going to be respectful of his use of the land as well. Um, and there's another farmer up the road um, who uh, we're, we're concerned about um, him too and uh, building a relationship with him. So he's gonna be um, spreading manure, for example. We need manure amendment nice. uh, on our land and he's, he's in a manure contract right now with some new equipment. And so he needs to increase the amount of acreage that he's spreading on. And so we're going to be um, inviting Ben to, um, to share some of his crop of manure on our land um, oh, cool. as part of the amendment, soil amendment process. Yeah. Re reclaiming land involves a whole lot more than dropping a tiller down. Although when you said uh, there's another farmer in Lancaster County, it's Lancaster County. There's another farmer on the other side of him too. And another one on the other side again. <laughs> Well, there's encroaching development, even on the West end of where there we are, there's encroaching development. And, um, you know, where I live in Lidditz, Lancaster County, we're watching farmland disappear to development yeah. very quickly. Um, so that's, it is a concern and it's why we're actually partnering with Lancaster farmland trust and becoming a preserve farm this year as well. So what you're describing is not the typical context for pastoral ministry. Um, so what does pastoral ministry look like uh, where you are in the space that isn't congregationally based? And uh, what kind of spiritual practices are you doing uh, with your volunteers and guests? And, and then also you, you are doing some congregation-based work? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a pastor of a congregation, um, a small congregation. I think we should call it a typical congregation right. Lutherans now. Um, in in um, Akron, near Ephrata, Lancaster County, the small borough of Akron. Um, and I'm also on the staff at a larger Lutheran church. That my uh, Zion Lutheran in Akron and St. Paul Lutheran Lidditz are forming a cooperative partnership ministry. And part of that has entailed my participation on the staff at St. Paul um, as their pastor for mission and outreach. And really about community engagement and um, getting them involved at Whittle Farm and stewarding their own three acres of land in their backyard. Um, so yeah, so I'm doing that congregational ministry work. Um, and then the farm, the, the spiritual practices at the farm vary. Uh, we've had um, 
we tend to have uh, worshiping ex opportunities at the farm during throughout the growing season. Um, I hosted several dinner church gatherings at the farm. Um, so um, worship around a meal. I'm, I know you guys are familiar with the dinner church movement. Love We've been dinner part church. of that. Yeah, we started a dinner church um, in my uh, congregational context about six years ago, in 2015, so almost six years ago now. Um, and some of some of those um, gatherings have happened at the farm. Um, so it's been a worshiping community gathering at the farm. Volunteers who come are also have been invited to be part of those worshiping opportunities. We've done campfire worships. Um, I led a retreat at the farm uh, about a, about two weeks ago, and one of the spiritual practices um, that we offered was, uh, I think, pretty simple but pretty meaningful too. Um, we read the parable of the sower from the Gospel of Mark, and then uh, the participants sowed rye seed into um, one of our one of our fields, which is our, our primary cover crop. So they sowed rye and got that sort of experience of casting seeds, um, walking in the soil, um, noticing uh, you know where the seeds fall. Um, you know, what they realized was casting seed in that way is this indiscriminate way of, of seeding um, the ground. Um, there's uncertainty in it, but there's also um, a freedom involved in it. And, and so then we, after we're done casting seed, we could have a discussion about the parable, um, recognizing that the agrarian context of that parable and its original telling um, is largely meaningless to people who have uh, little to no experience of, of that practice. Um, they've never even, maybe even in Lancaster County, they've met, maybe never seen um, seed casting in that way. The tactile physical experience of casting the seed and walking on the earth is itself meaningful. And I think it deepens the meaning of the parable. So things like that, you know, um, that are simple, but recognizing the agrarian context of the of the biblical story and how it can uh, how much more relatable it becomes in the in an agricultural context where we're actually doing the things that the Bible is, um, you know, the, the Bible is, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, framed within the context of the Bible. No, and I think it's it's an impulse that we have as people who exist in faith communities and are invested in faith communities. We often do a lot of, if you'll permit me the term, play acting. I mean, we put up manger scenes at Christmas. You know, we reenact, you know, Christ carrying the cross. You know, we do stations of the cross, which kind of brings us, you know, to different parts of the crucifixion story. And so this idea of putting ourselves into the place of the story and play acting it, actually getting our bodies involved with it is part of what we do. But then there are times where we're scared to death to, uh, to, to get it in, to get other parts of that story embodied in us. Um, you know, going on a hike, you know, to help us understand, you know, what it's like to wander, um, to, to sow seed, all those sorts of things. And it really speaks to the way I think the farm and outdoor ministry in general. Um, I'm also thinking of wild churches, you know, things of that nature that really invite us to embody and to sacramentalize, if I can use that term, like 
make more sacramental this idea that we can live into these stories. And it doesn't mean everybody's got to be a farmer, but it does mean that there's something about participating in our bodies that makes it come alive. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's absolutely right. And when you said not everybody has to be a farmer, um, that's true too. However, when, when we have the gift of land um, that gives people the opportunity to come and be a farmer, you know, we, we actually say, uh, you know, the sign up genius where people sign up to volunteer, uh, we name people volunteer farmers. Mm. We want people to, to, to sort of not only embody it in, in the actual work, but to, um, to have a different mindset about, you know, we want, we want to change their minds about what farming is mm. because it has been professionalized and industrialized for, you know, over 50 years. Um, and we need to, I think as a people, as a species, as human beings, and as people of faith, we have to, you know, part of the transformation of our minds here um, in, in the sacramentalizing of um, this, this work, this ministry, um, is that we're, we are all called to till and keep. We're all called to plant and grow and share. If we eat then, and, and I know we do, if you eat, then production of food has to be part of your emerging mindset. I think a, having that kind of mindset, you know, developing a new sort of mind about what it means to be in relationship with the earth. Um, it's, it's not just about taking a, a hike and enjoying the birds. Um, I think that we have to get our hands dirty. We have to get, um, we have to get involved in um, the earth community and in the, the broader ecosystem um, to, to really understand what our role is. The earth um, probably doesn't need us to the extent that we need the earth, um, but I think most people do not have that mindset. We still too frequently see the earth as a, a resource to extract or consume. Um, and so we're really about changing a mindset too, that it is, um, that the earth, that the ground, the, the trees, the plants, the roots, the fruit that is produced are dripping with the presence of God so that it's really sacred. It's a sacred experience. When you talk about it being sacramental, when I'm at the farm, it is a sacred and holy experience for me. And I think it is for many people who show up there. Um, for many people, it's it becomes church. It's the cathedral of creation. I want to lean into, you, you've already touched on a little bit of this, but your experience as a pastor and the way that you've thought about the spirituality around farming um, and how it collides with sustainability, I think, Actually, like this conversation all feels a part of one thing as somebody who's invested in the institutional church and trying to think about how that might be sustainable in the same way that a piece of land needs to be cared for in order for it to be sustainable. I think there are a lot of lessons there. And you've detailed some of the things that you're doing to make the farm more sustainable. If there are other interesting projects, we'd love for you to share um, what some of those might be. But 
one of the things that I appreciate is that sustainability, particularly on the scale that you have to engage with it, is time consuming, it is costly, and it holds back on production for some time. It requires a long view on production. And we live in a world where we're not always gifted that kind of time. Like I'm already struck by the fact that you said, we planted sugar maples and hopefully in 15 years, we'll be able to get stuff out of it. Like church just doesn't operate on a 15 year window like that. And so I'm wondering what else are you doing for sustainability and how is it you've been able to have that kind of patience around those projects? Mm. So, um, we've talked about this in a little bit. My, my family background was a family farm in upstate New York. I left the farm um, as I would have been the fourth generation to, to inherit the farmland in upstate New York. I left the farm to go into ministry in 1997. Subsequently, my parents and my whole family ended up getting out of farming and, and leaving that land. Um, it took me 25 years to realize um, the, the import and the significance of staying in a place. Um, I, I believe that one of, one of the things that allows for sustainability and for a long future sort of long view for me is that I'm, I believe that part of my calling here is, is a calling to remain here. Um, I've, I've been in three call processes that would have taken me away from my current context um, in the last 15 years. And um, I think other leaders probably would have jumped at those opportunities. But for me, what I heard along the way in discernment was that part of what it means to, um, to sus be sustainable, to live sustainably is to stay where you are which I think is really countercultural, right? Um, you know, I think we're, we're a, a, an impatient, mobile um, culture. And to say, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to do the things, whatever it takes to be able to sustain a livelihood in this place um, so that we can continue to nurture and care for this community, these people, and this land. Um, so that's honestly, that is the first thing. I think when the, the sustainable practices um, are significant and important and came secondary to me, to the, to the personal and I think um, family commitment to remain here and to say, this is going to be our, our place of, of worship and witness and ministry. This is where we're called to be disciples. Um, you know, in the midst of a mobile and, um, you know, fast paced um, world that is struggling to make long-term commitments um, in relationship and in place. Mm -hmm. We've made a commitment to stay in a place and that, provides us both a challenge but also a gift because when you make that commitment then you can begin to make other commitments like let's plant trees because we're going to stay here so we can see in 15 years we're gonna we're gonna tap those trees i'm you know and i'm already thinking about my own children and what it means for them to grow up and with this kind of a mindset that it's actually okay to not move every five years yeah 
to stay in a place and to feel like you're rooted there. We, we, a lot of people moving, coming in and going out of our ministry context. And we've had to, to recognize that it's part of our calling and part of the gift for us is to stay here while other people come and go. Um, so that's, I think, a critical piece for us. Derek, he's the quintessential Lutheran. Luther's quote, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. And so, but I hear so much of that. Um, I hear so much of that sentiment, investing in the future and taking a long view. And I think that's, I think in a moment where we're... There's so much anxiety, whether it's post-pandemic, whether it's post-election, whether it's, you know, there are so many things that are causing us this existential concern in our moment. There's something faithful about saying, you know, we're still investing for 20 years down the road. And I think that's really powerful. So, um, but yeah, I had to, I, I have to poke at your Lutheranism just a hair. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, and I'm glad you did. Farming, farming has also taught me, and I think it teaches all of us, um, a, a restored sense of um, balance and rhythm with the with the earth. Um, you know, farming teaches you that there are things you want to get done that you can't do on a rainy day, um, or when the weather changes abruptly. Um, there are clear ecological challenges challenges that we face in farming now that have to do with climate change. Um, that means that we have to be both, I think at the same time, both have a sense of urgency and be in the moment and realize that when, when you can get something done, you have to get it done now. Yeah. Uh, but also to have this kind of slow and patient um, it, it, playing a long game, be recognizing that, you know, things take time to, to grow and evolve too. So. Yeah. It's just like the planting of seeds. You, uh, you, things are going to grow over time. I mean, we're going to be slowly regenerating soil and maintaining soil health for as long as we're farming this land. Um, making compost takes time. You can't do it overnight. Um, so those pieces, too, have been really meaningful to me in the rhythm of congregational life. You know, people like to say, well, after Easter, Pastor, things are going to slow down for you, right? And I say, <laughs> absolutely Why? not. Why? In my world, things Why are going to be rude like that. <laughs> things don't, right? Things don't slow down for me after Easter. No. I'm not that kind of a pastor. Um, you know, in fact, my season is going to, I was just saying this to some colleagues the other day who were talking about how. After Easter, things are going to finally start to slow down a little bit. And I said, absolutely not. They're actually going to, um, I'm going to be busier after Easter um, because we're going into the growing season. Yeah, I think it's the idea that pastors' lives slow down after Easter is, is comical uh, as, <laughs> yeah. as the husband of a pastor and a former pastor myself. Maybe um, Easter Monday, but that's it. I, <laughs> if... if if that um you've you've talked a lot about the sustainability practices on on the farm and all the things that you're contributing there i wanted to very quickly just uh one of the things that jumped out for me uh in this article that sam is talking about and we'll put a link to it in the show notes um 
is you talk about reforesting pro uh, projects and um, there's a reforesting project that I'm, I've been connected to here in Baltimore. Uh, I would just love to hear about how, how reforesting has been a part of, of I, I mean, again, you're talking about reforesting kind of shows a dedication to place. Um, talk a little bit about how, how reforesting has been a part of this ministry and a part of, of this work and, and how you got involved in it. So again, I, I feel like we sort of fell into that experience. Um, we, I wasn't thinking about that at all until, um, in a relationship with the Lancaster Conservancy, they um, connected me with the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, I struck up a relationship with Ryan Davis, one of their um, foresters. And um, we began to talk about uh, reforestation um, as a, an important aspect of um, uh, addressing the climate crisis um, and also as a, a healthy way to um, care for land um, you know and provide for a longer a longer future um, so at the farm we we d dedicated um, a, a couple acres to uh, about 300 trees um, I think that there's more places on the farm where we will do some reforestation work over time. Uh, and then also I was able to connect the Alliance's work to one of my congregations, St. Paul Lutheran and Lidditz, uh, and their three acres of property. They, they wanted to um, do something meaningful with that property. And um, we turned it over to the Alliance. So we've, we planted that congregation planted over a hundred trees in about an acre of trees, maybe about 200 trees um, in the fall of 2020. Um, and, uh, and then we're planting the rest of it as a um, restored natural habitat, meadow, pollinator, grasses, and wildflowers, um, a beautification project that will have long-term implications that'll probably outlast and outlive the congregation itself. Um, those, those trees will, some of those trees we planted can live to be over a hundred years old. So, um, you know, we are talking about long-term reparation work. Um, and so, yeah, the, the reforestation piece, um, I think is, is another way to go. You know, they, when they first, St. Paul first came to me, they said, well, why don't we grow more food? We can turn those three acres into a big garden project, like a little whittle farm. And I said, no, I don't think I want to do that. I'm, I'm already managing a farm. Um, but what can we do with this piece of land that is going to have um, some significance and meaning given um, the ecological concerns that we share with respect to species loss, habitat loss, pollinator loss, um, diversity loss? We, we want to... Uh, we want to return that land to its natural state. Um, and they, they were able to get behind that. Um, I think there are lots of churches and congregations that have access to land um, and they're not sure what's the, the, the kindliest use of that land. But 
returning it to a natural state um, is, is important work. And I think reforesting efforts um, are going to be necessary um, to, to heal the planet. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really important this idea of each piece of land makes makes new demands just because it's all part of one big deed doesn't mean that it all demands the same kind of treatment and yes if we we would we would recoil in a faith community or even in a any kind of an organization if we treated all the human beings in the exact same way because that's you know that's equal or whatever and it's it comes out of these really unfortunate notions of what equality actually is, where it's like, we're just going to treat everybody the same way when the needs are so vastly different. And that is a spiritual concept that has real like economic and programmatic realities. Like we're like, no, actually, we're not going to grow more food, which leans into where, because that's not what this particular piece of land demands, which leans into where we began all of this with saying, I'm, I'm more interested in what we produce and how we produce it, what's involved in that production process and saying there are places for production, there are places for restoration, one might even say reparation with the land and allowing those places to be and to do what it wants to do. I think that's, I think that's a fabulous notion. I think, you know, this is healing work. Um, and so it partly rec we, we are, invited to recognize the ways that we have contributed to um, the destruction of the land, the misuse of the land, um, the ways in which we continue to do ecological harm, both um, directly and indirectly. Acknowledging that um, and then saying, well, how do we become repairers? How do we become healers? Um, because that's what Jesus calls us to be. It calls us to be reconcilers and healers, um, to receive forgiveness and then to live out of that grace by being a healing presence in some way. So I think of what we're doing as healing. And so what is the most healing we can, can do in this place? And you're right. Um, you know, not everybody requires the same kind of healing. If you put the same Band-Aid on everybody and you fail to recognize what they're what what their where where the source of their pain is or what their injury is then you are really failing to be the the most effective kind of healer every place needs to be um healed in different ways um and so yeah we're we're going to continue to farm the land some people wonder well why are you growing sugar maples if you're farming or why aren't you growing more food there and you know instead you're growing uh, rye and hairy vetch as a cover crop. Well, because we want to grow food and we also want to recognize that we need to amend the soil. We need to be healers of the, the earth as a whole community. All of it's connected. So in, in doing this, this reparation, restoration and healing work, um, want to end where we always do and asking what gives you hope um the kind of hope that gets you out of bed in the morning not sort of a light flimsy hope but a real sturdy hope yeah um i think what's giving me hope right now is um, that there has my experience is there's growing awareness among um the people I'm connecting to in my community, 
there's a growing awareness that um, we are responsible for uh, the trouble that we're in ecologically. And there's also a growing awareness that there are, there are things that we can and must do about that. Um, and I think there's also a growing awareness um, that uh, planting, growing, and sharing food together is a, a powerful um, expression of our faith. Um, and I, I think the other thing that's given me hope is uh, how many people um, are interested in what we're doing um, and want to be part of it in some way. Um, and not just at the Whittle Farm, but I, I've had the privilege over the last many months of getting to hear other stories like ours of faith leaders and faith communities in other parts of the country that are um, beginning to do what we are doing, um, beginning to recognize their call to be caretakers, healers, growers, producers, um, and frankly, uh, sustaining lovers of, of the land they find themselves connected to. Um, so I have a lot of hope right now because of all the people that are beginning to see um, both the damage that we've done and a sense of calling to be healers and restorers. Man's been preaching today. Uh, so Matt, we're, we're, we're going to bring it, we're, we're going to bring that the interview to a close. Um, you've just been such a fascinating conversation today and to be able to catch up with you to hear a little bit more about the work and how it's developing and to let us in on the evolution of this ongoing project has been an absolute joy. We would love for our listeners to be able to engage with you in whatever way. And so how, how can people keep up with you and with Whittle Farm? Where can they reach you? How can they be in touch with you if they want to stay in touch? Uh, the Whittle Farm Facebook page, uh, the uh, whittlefarm.org is our website. Um, I, I love to connect one-to-one -one with people. So if people have questions or would like to learn more about what we're doing or want to be involved, um, they should connect with me by email directly. Uh, and th that email is uh, found both on the Facebook page and on the website, um, mlenahan74 at gmail.com. And uh, then we can, uh, you know, we can continue the conversation. Rock and roll. Well, Matt, thank, thank you so much. A joy to catch up and uh, hopefully we'll be doing some farming this year. I need to, I just need to make the hour drive up and come see you. So I'm looking forward to doing that at some point. Maybe I'll drag Derek along with me too. I'll be happy to be dragged. You're, you're absolutely welcome. Come on up anytime and uh, we'll, we'll get our hands dirty and, and uh, continue the conversation together. Thanks guys. Been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.